Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. What's up, what's up, everybody? Mm. Welcome to the Two Tongues Podcast. Both of the tongues are in the house. Yes, indeed. White boy summer in full effect. Both of them. <laughs> so, how you doing? Bonjour. Bonjour, no. Mi scusi. That's about all the Italian I know. Oh, wait a minute. No, buongiorno is Italian. Bonjour. I'm getting those confused. But anyways, this isn't a language class, nope. although it could be. Uh, we've got free reign. We can do whatever we want. Yep. For instance, today we're going to talk about a podcast. Uh, we're going to do another podcast about a podcast. Part du. All right. Yes, indeed. And this time I'm I'm almost completely in the dark. You got yeah. You got some quotes, but uh, yeah, I didn't give you a whole lot of prep on this one. Uh, although, <coughs> excuse me. You have listened to this podcast before. You just don't remember it. Oh. Because I listened to it. Uh, this came out. Let me uh, let me take a look here. I'll tell you. I do remember you recommending the podcast, and I listened to it, but I couldn't remember the content. Yeah, I'm sure if something could jog my memory, but it's been a while. Yeah. Well, I don't know when this came out. It came out a, like a couple years ago, I think. Uh, it's a podcast by one of my favorite guys, Thaddeus Russell, um, <clears throat> and his guest on this podcast is a guy named Donald Hoffman. Uh, so, you know, we're going to get into who Donald Hoffman is, but, uh, that, that's just, it's the unregistered podcast. I believe it's episode 105. You guys should go listen to it. But I mean, we're going to talk about like pretty in depth about what they talk about, but you should still go listen to it. It's pretty good. Uh, and just listen to Thaddeus Russell's podcast in general. So, uh, growing up, Mm -hmm. my buddy Brian had a friend named Thad. Yeah, we always thought that was very strange because I didn't know anybody named Thad, and if it was short for Thaddeus, that'd have been cool. But I didn't know that. Yeah, but I remember referring to him as uh, Thaddeus Red Thaddeus Maximus. Yes, I'm gonna have to hit Thaddeus Russell up with that. <laughs> All right, what is it? Thaddeus, Thaddeus Red Thaddeus Maximus. <laughs> okay. That's great. <laughs> Do you need me to spell it for you, buddy? I, I think I can figure. I can uh, sound that one out. All right. Um. So. All right. I told you before about this episode that I was going to like kind of swerve over into your lane a little bit. The kind of the kind of stuff that you talk about. Yeah, bring it over here, yeah. All right, man. So uh, that's that's kind of where we're going with this podcast. Uh, Thaddeus starts every podcast out with like a little like introduction, a, a, a paragraph that he writes about the introduction of it. So I'm just going to read that to you right now. Got it. <sighs> Prepare myself. Does reality exist outside of human consciousness? If reality does exist outside of our consciousness, how can we access it? Is there something outside of space and time? Is there a logic to our emotions? Has science ever been right about anything? 
Can science and religion be reconciled, or are they one and the same? Are people who seek the truth more likely to die? And what happens when we find out that what our fathers told us isn't true? This is my interview with Donald Hoffman. I feel like Thaddeus <laughs> Russell right now. That's pretty sweet. <laughs> nice. Um, all right. So the the way that Thaddeus introduces what this podcast, they're both critics of reality is what he says. Um, critics of the idea that truth exists outside of human consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, they come They come from it. They come at it from different perspectives. Uh, Hoffman is a cognitive psychologist uh, and... You know, like he's actually involved in the science aspect of it. And Thaddeus is a historian, uh, philosopher, anthropologist. That's where he's coming Mm. from. Um, So they start talking about this. And I kind of like categorize this into what the what our fathers told us uh, line that he talked about in that intro there. And I mean, you'll understand why, obviously. Um, So Thaddeus asked this guy, Donald Hoffman, about his father and. Uh, He says that his father was a Protestant minister with a master's degree in chemistry and a master's degree in counseling psychology. His mother had a master's degree in family counseling as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very, very well-educated people, still fundamentalist Christians. He says, this is a quote from Hoffman, he was a chemist with a master's degree that believed the earth was only 6,000 years old. Mm. That's super interesting to me, man, because I know... I used to, like, there was a point in my life when I just thought all religious people were dumb. You know, it's like they're lying to themselves. You know, I thought that I was a genius. Um, but now I understand that that's not the case. There's, there are obviously some very sharp people who are religious people. Yep. Um, and how you define religious can be pretty broad, too. But um, So his father had a, a firm belief in truth and reality, uh, the literal translation of the Bible. That's the true reality. Um, so Thaddeus you know, suggests basically that uh, he's got an Oedipal struggle going on, and he says that it did hold him back from going into this sort of thing for about 10 years. Um, he doesn't seem, like, angry about it, though, you know? Like, he just seems like, um, you know, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, are you saying the the conservative religious background was holding him back? Yeah, yeah, like his internal, you know, obviously he didn't want to disappoint his parents, but he's, mm. I think he's implying that he has like an internalized, it was like inside of him, not just worried about his parents, you know what I mean? Oh, yes, okay. Uh, so he didn't step away from that religious, you know, you know that religious way of thinking until he was about, about 31, you know, Somewhere in his 30s, he yep. says. Well, All right. Yeah, that's an interesting time because yeah. it corresponds to a lot of people's like n- next level of psychological development. Yeah, yeah. When, when, when you're really grown up, you know. Mm-hmm. I also think uh, one thing I was talking about earlier, I think it's in, a, you know, you hear about educated people who are religious, but you most of the time they're not like fundamentalist. You know what I mean? If they're really well-educated, intelligent people and they're religious, they, they tend to think about it pretty, you know, not cut and dry, not really like literal interpretation type of people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it's just interesting that somebody, you know, a family so educated is just like fundamentalist 6,000 years old. That's interesting. It is interesting. It is. Um, so this guy says that his father never abandoned him. Oh, no, I'm sorry. One second. I got to go back up to this. 
He was taught as a child that to question is an act of disbelief, and disbelief relegates you to the fires of hell. <clears throat> mm. If I'm not allowed to question this at all, there is something deeply wrong, and a God that would send you to hell because you have an intellectual curiosity, what kind of God is that? Uh, so, I mean, this is just like base, you know, this is what pulled him out of it. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Like the idea that suppressing that curiosity, that doesn't, I don't think that's going to work out well for you, you know? No, but we all, we've all known people like that that uh, are told not to question, uh, and, and it seems to be, <coughs> it seems to boil boil down to the the parent not knowing how to address those sorts of questions. So rather than uh, do the hard thing, they'll just discourage that entirely. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Don't 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 ask the hard questions because I don't want to answer them. Do you think that curiosity? And and creativity are in some way related to one another. Oh, I I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I just think that there's something special about creativity, and especially in the way that we kind of think about things. You know what I mean? Like creativity, there is something special about that. You know, it's yeah, like I, making something. Yes, absolutely. So there's something there's something sacred about it. Yeah. So I think that pushing down curiosity, that's not. That's not going to encourage the best people. I don't know. You know, it's not going to encourage the brightest people to want to be a part of whatever you're doing. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah, and, and so, you know, I've been preparing for that Maps of Meaning uh, yeah. episode. And one of the things Jordan Peterson says about um, personal interest, he said, people who follow their curiosity, who follow their personal interest, the things that call out to them. And that's sort of how it feels when something's interesting to you. You don't exactly know why it, why that is interesting yeah. to you. It just is. Um, he said that that following your personal interest is what guarantees that you will that you will follow the hero's journey. Because when you pursue your interest, where does that take you? It takes you into the unknown. Yeah. Okay. And that's where the that's where the valuable things are are found. You Absolutely. know. Absolutely. That's where the treasure yeah, is. Yeah. That's where the treasure is. Yep. Um. Yeah, Jordan Peterson talks a lot about rescuing your father. Uh, yep. This is going to be about uh, his father wanting to rescue him. He says his father never abandoned him, that he always hoped to bring him back in to, you know, the, that Christian way of thinking. Uh, I feel like that's how my parents feel about me. Oh, yeah. You know? Um, I agree. <laughs> and I wonder how – it made me wonder how your family feels because your family is pretty religious too, you know? Like I feel like your – your mom, at least, like if somebody did something like said "Hail Satan," your mom would like clutch her chest. You know, yeah. like what, you know, like yeah. what are you talking about? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I think that my, I think that my mom in particular has those sorts of concerns, but I also think that she respects me intellectually. So she's like, you know what? Even yeah. if he believes some weird things, he must have a reason for it. Okay. I, you know, that that's kind good. of thing. Yeah, that's cool. Um. What do you plan on doing, like with having kids? Oh, what God. do you tell? What do you tell them? What do you? I mean, I had a I had a lot bigger problem with that question uh, a few years ago. Yeah, uh, because because then I felt like if I if I put my kids into church where I know there's going to be a certain level of indoctrination going on, if I do that voluntarily and put my kids in that in that predicament, am I somehow guilty? of brainwashing them or or if i am i guilty of um 
you know, pushing them in some direction and putting putting something into them that, you know, that I, I have questions about its validity. Like, it goes back to a, a way of thinking about those religious stories where you're like, oh, it's, it's uh, you know, uh, it's just a bunch of stories. Sure. Uh, I don't know why people put so much credit in them. So once I got introduced to Jordan Peterson and got kind of a renewed... Um, a renewed sense of what the meanings of those myths were. It like rejuvenated my, my um, interest in Christianity. It's like, Oh, Oh yeah. Okay. You can use that structure that, that particular structure to teach your kids everything they need to know. But every religion is, was designed to do that at every point in time. It's not like Christianity special. Once I got that frame of mind, then I had much less fear about doing that. Yeah. That's interesting. Jordan Peterson, just, you know, he's a, he's a hero, that guy. Yeah. Uh, so he starts getting into his view of science here, and this part is super interesting to me. I know you read through the quotes. This guy is a scientist who talks about science and other scientists in a way that is unique. Um, I, I noticed that. Yeah. So I, I, this is a pretty lengthy quote. I'm just going to read through it real quick. <clears throat> That kind of background really gave me a first-hand understanding of the difference between science and spirituality. The questions that they ask and the style in which they answer them... God damn it. <laughs> Sorry. The questions they ask and the style in which they answer them and the strengths and weaknesses of each side. Each side has something really good to contribute and has its own problems. I think the spiritual tradition traditions ask really good questions. Who are we? Why are we here? What is this all about? Sometimes some scientists will say that's not in the purview of science. I think it is, and most scientists have answers for those questions. Those answers being we're nothing but atoms. There is no deeper meaning aside from whatever meaning we give, and maybe our meaning comes from the shortness of life. Uh, is there life after death? Of course not. Your brain dies and consciousness dies with it. They have commitments, but, but they may not want to say what they are. Um, I, I, I mean, I think that what he's saying here is that they're taking those things on faith. Like, I mean, you know, there's a... No, I, I, I guess that's what I'm saying, basically, is all of those answers that the, he just gave that is going to be your oh, yeah. typical answers from a scientist type, you know, um, they're taking all of that on faith. There's no, uh, you know, there's no evidence, really, for any of that. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I, I think that's a, an interesting paradox that very smart people don't realize they, they fall into, mm-hmm. where they they will scoff at religious people for having faith in stories, let's say. Mm-hmm. And then then they will rely uh, with no evidence. They have perfect faith in their atheist you know, explanation of things yeah. and don't realize the hypocrisy in the situation. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's almost like you've read these quotes because we're – I mean, you, you hit – you had said the word stories there, and you, like, hit the word, oh, the nail on the head, you know? Right. Uh, so Thad says religious people uh, have a conception of what the good life is, uh, and he gets scared when scientists start to— I mean, he's, like, scared when uh, religious people tell other people who are not the same religion, you know, you can't do that either, but scientists, they, they feel like this entitlement because they think that they're studying— 
objectivity. Yes. That they can just like tell people how things are. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, like they have special insight into how things actually are. Yeah. yeah. So he says he gets particularly concerned when scientists start getting involved in telling us what the good life is, you know? Mm. Uh, so this is another longer quote here. What is that? What is that fear? What does that make you think of? What do you? I'm sorry. Scientists getting involved in determining what a good life is. Um, communism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that yeah. like using math equations to figuring out to figure out what everyone needs and how to allocate things. Yep. Taking you know? taking all of the humanity out of it, and yeah, uh, yeah it would be terrible. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this is another kind of long quote here. I'm just going to read through it real quick. Uh, I think it's fine for scientists to study human nature, to study our emotions, to study the logic of human emotions. Say from an evolutionary point of view, like evolutionary psychology, it turns out there is a deep logic to human emotions. We can't actually understand why we have in-groups and out-groups, for example. Why is a species that needs to cooperate to survive why we've developed emotions for punishing those who refuse to cooperate, who cheat. So it turns out there is a very, very deep logic to human emotions that come out of evolutionary psychology. And on this, I'm in pretty deep agreement with some writing by Steven Pinker in his books The Blank Slate and The Better Angels of Our Nature, where he makes the argument that only by really understanding human nature and its logic can we understand that we're can we understand what we're doing politically and sociologically that's useful? That brings out the better angels of human nature and what we're doing that brings out the darker side. It involves realizing that there are both. Hmm. Uh, and what does that what does that make you think of? <laughs> it makes me think of Carl Jung. It makes me think of the shadow. Yeah, you exactly. Know, uh, that that that. In order to be fully actualized, in order to realize what you really are, you have to realize what you're capable of. Yeah. And as a human being, you can look around at people you admire and see what you're capable of in the in the greatest sense of the word. You know, like what what are we capable of athletically, intellectually? Mm. You know, uh, but on the opposite side of the coin, we have to also recognize, like Jung would say. That all of the worst things you can imagine are also within our within our reach, mm-hmm. um, you know, all the way down to the Hitlers and the Maos and and you know, the worst yep. of, of you know human possibility. Absolutely. Um, so that's what it, that's pretty much what it made me think of too. I, I specifically was thinking of Jordan Peterson because I've heard him talk about oh, that kind of stuff yeah. all the time too. Um, so at this point, Thaddeus says, uh, I have to leave now. Uh, I mean, he's just joking, but he's, he says, I have to leave now. I'm skeptical of most of the things you just said. <laughs> uh, and basically he's, you know, he's, he needs uh, Donald Hoffman to elaborate on what he means here because there is, like, if you are saying that there's no reality outside of human consciousness. It's like, what are you basing these moral judgments on? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, well, can we can we can we circle back sure. to the, there's a logic to human emotions for yeah, a second? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So when he says that there's a logic to human emotions, and he says basically that we have emotions that correspond to punishment and emotions that correspond to reward, so that like the society has a that the, our biology has a system set up to allow us to be integrated into into society by by again 
creating these chemical responses and electrical responses in, in our bodies that we that that are either punishing or rewarding feelings mm-hmm. and that there's those are tied to our you know interactions with other people or whatever but um when he said there's a logic to human emotions he uh, he's basically suggesting that uh you know when people say like emotional in the sense that it's irrational mm-hmm. that oh no that this isn't that my emotions aren't like that they're not irrational in fact there's a, there's a, a very uh, biological logic to them okay you know there's a scientific explanation for why they yeah, exist yeah and uh it reminded reminds me of jordan peterson because he talks about something in maps of meaning that's really interesting he says that emotions um he doesn't exactly say this but i'm going to say this that emotions are like your unconscious speaking to you it's like a way of getting information to you that's quicker than your biology Okay. You know, it's like directly into your nervous system sort of thing. And um and uh what and what else is about emotions? Um well the point is that the emotions are tied to the archetypes. Okay. And he and he and they're basically like instincts. Okay. So so we feel various emotions that are basically these archetypal instincts, like explaining emotions as if they're instincts. And the reason that there's logic to them, like he's saying here, mm-hmm. is because they're because they correspond to our sub personalities. It's like, uh, oh. you know, you have an emotion for that primal part of you that's like, you know, uh, uh, lustful and angry and you know primal, like like those parts of your bot of your yeah. of your psyche. Um, there's emotions linked directly to those things, and they're they're like the most primal, instinctual parts of our circuitry. You know, they're built gotcha. way deep down. Um, so I just think that's interesting that he says there's a logic to human emotions, and Jordan Peterson's like, yeah, oh yeah, the emotions you can map them right onto these instincts. Okay, that is very interesting. Uh, thinking of emotions as instincts, um, I. Uh, you said something there, and I ju- I lost it. I was trying to hold Damn. on to it. I should I, I should I grabbed this pen. I should have grabbed another <laughs> kind of pen. Um, all right. Well, we'll we'll go on here. All right. Cool. Sorry. Uh, no, you're good. Uh, so Thaddeus starts talking about his dad. His dad was a well. His grandpa was a Mormon preacher. What I don't know what they're called in Mormonism. Mm. Pastor. Uh, and his dad ended up leaving Mormonism and becoming. Not a scientist, because a scientist is a person who does, but a scientismist. You mm. know what I mean? Yeah. One of these people who worship science. Yeah. Okay. Um, and he says, Thaddeus says this. Uh, it will be interesting to suss out how you reconcile your friendship with Harris and Pinker, who are like these scientism type guys. Uh, and your work challenging a lot of what they say. You have ma- major differences with both of them. Uh, and they come back to that again. So uh, Thad says his father would react angrily when he would question reality and that he uh, assumes Hoffman has had people react similarly. Thaddeus says it's an existential threat to someone who has spent their whole life doing things in a certain framework. There's looking at science as a portal to truth, and then there's looking at science as perpetual skepticism. Mm. Um and so, I mean, what do you think about 
how how do you think about science? I think I know the answer to this question, but out of those two, you have those two options: um, a portal to truth or perpetual skepticism. Mm. Oh boy, <laughs> I I don't even know where to begin answering that question. Um, perpetual skepticism. Well, you know what, man. I think that perpetual skepticism in this situation might be the right answer. Yeah. And 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 the reason is that the mysteries of being are never ending. So science science gives you an opportunity to explore those mysteries forever. So it is sort of perpetual skepticism. It, that yeah. that adventure that science is um you know, but whether what you're revealing are truths goes into the question of what is truth. And boy, I, I don't know even where to begin on that one. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, so this is what uh, Hoffman says to that that thing that Thad just asked him. He said, "I have what might seem like contradictory views on science in this regard. I think it's a legitimate goal for a scientist to come up with a true theory, and I don't think we've ever succeeded." So. Mm. Mm. I think he, you know, that he's leaning. He's definitely a um, what, what's the exact wording here? Oh, perpetual skepticism. Yeah. Guy. Okay. So, has science ever been right about anything? That was one of the other uh, things in that that little intro there. Yeah. So he says that every theory is wrong, even the famous ones, even yeah. the the most famous theories. Yes. Uh, n- not trivially, not trivially wrong. And he's not saying that he's got better ideas than them. Right. He, well, well, can we can we pause on that yeah, for absolutely. a second? H- how was that the case? Because I think people listening to this might, it might not immediately understand what he's getting at there. So that so the theories are wrong. How is it the case that every scientific theory is wrong? Oh, okay. Even, well, even the ones that have allowed us to do all of the great shit that we've done. Um. Basically, we'll get to this. He definitely uh, oh, yeah. he goes into this more. But basically what he's saying is that their explanatory power ends. You know, like there we get to a certain point where it just stops working. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so he says quantum mechanics, general relativity, special relativity, evolution by natural selection. These are all incredibly beautiful theories. They're incredibly beautiful. They're explanatory power for a lot of data. Not all data, but a wide range of data is incredible. Just like Newton's theory reigned for something like 300 years, it's very, very simple and very, very powerful. It explains almost everything, and yet it is deeply conceptually wrong at the core. Mm. So that kind of answers what you were asking there, I think. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So I... So I think that like science is an is an exercise, like we just said, it's a perpetual exercise. It will never end. Mm-hmm. There's n- there's not there's not an end to like to the mysteries. They go they go as deep as we can fish. Yeah. So um so so science is basically the process of of becoming forever more accurate by recognizing where we've been wrong. It's yeah. just it's just a continual process of learning where we've been wrong, so that we can continue to hone down, uh, chip away uh, all the nonsense to yeah. reveal the truth, to reveal the you know whatever's left. Yeah, that is science. That is science. Um, and so every theory at every juncture in there, no matter how good it is, like you said, its explanatory power only goes so far. Yeah. At some point, that theory 
it, you know, new data makes that theory wrong. So yeah. every theory is wrong because it's incomplete. Yeah. That's the idea. Um, yeah, that's perfect that it is incomplete. Uh, yeah, I, I was going to say something, but that, that like them being incomplete is like, it makes perfect sense. Mm. Um, so I, I think of what, you know, you think of these incomplete theories, it's like, it's trying to explain how things are, but it's not able to completely. And it's got some good ideas. Like the, if this is a story, like they said earlier, it's got some good parts mm -hmm. in it. It's got some some parts that are compelling and you can, you can predict things you based on them, you know? Yep. Um, and Thaddeus says, you could say the same thing about the Bible. They're both compelling, but not deeply true. Uh, great narratives with some deep flaws. I think that's interesting. That's an interesting way about thinking of um, religion. You know, well, I mean, Re read that phrase he uses again. Okay, you could say the same thing about the Bible. They're both compelling, but not deeply true. Great narrative with some deep flaws. Compelling, but not deeply true. Mm -hmm. So somebody like Jordan Peterson would say that it that it's exactly the opposite. That it's it's compelling because it's deeply true. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. Um, I think what he's saying here, and I'm not 100% sure, is he, I, th I don't think he's like insulting, or not insulting, what am I trying to say? Um, he's not disparaging the value of myth, but... Yeah, exactly. He's just saying that it has something to do with um, a deeper... A deeper level of reality, even than mm. than what we're th you know than yeah. what we're used to thinking about. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so where was I? Uh, so in trying to explain reality, science and religion both create an explanation that may be useful but isn't necessarily true. Is is uh, kind of what they were getting at okay. there. Um, so we got another quote here. He says. The idea is that whatever theory we came up with will disprove all previous scientific theories. Einstein doesn't dismiss all of Newton. We still use Newton. But Einstein takes it a step deeper. Mm. When we project our deeper theory back into space and time, we need to get back Einstein. We need to get back quantum field theory. Our old theories will have to be replaced by a deeper theory, but our deeper theory will be constrained by our older theories. That's so beautiful. Um... Yeah, it's it is beautiful. It is beautiful because the the fact that our old that the old theories constrain w the possibilities that you can explore going forward, it reminds me of this balance like like we're doing this dance with our with our culture um between what Jordan would say the known and the unknown. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, the fact the, the fact of what is known makes what what you can bring into into the known from the unknown, like what you can harvest from it, it limits it, um, and that there's this connection between uh, wh what it's possible to know um, and and what you already know that they're that they're linked and they and they you know they they hold you back. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just it just reminds me of this fractal image that comes to mind whenever we talk about consciousness and we're starting to talk about consciousness. Oh yeah, here comes the fractal image again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see. I was going to say something here. Uh, Einstein did just dismiss all of it. Okay, so he says, 
when we project our deeper theory back into space and time, mm. where are you projecting it from? Consciousness. I mean, I know, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we're get we're, we're going to get there. But that is like, what does that even mean mm. when you project it back into space and time? I that that makes sense to me, and I don't know if I'm understanding it the way he's trying to explain it. Mm-hmm. But I have this I have this way of visualizing the relationship between uh, God and creation, between you know, between between God and and the material cosmos, mm-hmm. and it's something like. A fractal representation of itself, um, and th- and that seems it seems right right in line with what we're talking about. Yeah. Yes, it does. Uh, I'm sorry, I keep losing my place here. I got it. Okay, so he says that these theories are not deeply right, but they're extremely right in a certain domain. You know, so um, in this new deeper theory project that he's doing uh in those domains he's like you have to get back you know relativity special in general evolution all of that stuff um so in that that spiel he gave he's he used the word eight uh i'm sorry he used the word deep about eight times Mm. um and thaddeus asks him and I, i love this part because Thaddeus, it's like it's a gotcha question, but it's not like an asshole gotcha question. It's just like he wants to make sure that Donald Hoffman is being consistent in his thinking here. Mm-hmm. He says, um, how is Einstein deeper than Newton? Are you saying Einstein is closer to the core of truth? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and the way that Hoffman replies is he says, I'm not sure if Einstein is deeper than Newton in the sense that it's closer to the core of truth. He's certainly deeper in the sense that he covers a broader range of phenomena that we can test. In terms of whether it's deeper in the sense of being closer to the truth, I hope so. One thing a scientist will tell you is that you can never disprove a theory. Disproving may be too strong, but what we can do, as we collect new data, our posterior belief in a theory can be increased or decreased. Mm. That is like not how I hear scientists talking, man. Like a lot of, a lot of uh, maybe not scientists as much as like these scientism worshiper types. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like this is what it is. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, and Infallibly. just the way this dude is talking, it's not like that. You know what I mean? It's like you can never, uh, you can never disprove a theory. Like that is not how people make science seem. It's oh, like yeah. you know, it's like we're lo- we're looking to prove theories all the time. And this guy's saying you can't even disprove a theory. I mean, he is saying that you can, like, basically get it so low in the probability that yeah. you you just write it off. But there's always the possibility that some new information exactly. will make it relevant. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. Um, and, uh, again, that is just not what I he- hear out of popular science. Neil deGrasse Tyson was on Rogan again. Yeah. Did you did you watch any of that? I haven't got to it yet. Don't, I mean, if you want to be frustrated, oh. I mean, he's just – I can't stand you, that, dude. It's have, a, a theme on this podcast. Now. <laughs> Neil deGrasse? Um. Uh, I forgot what I was gonna say. All Go right. Ahead. Um. Okay. Oh, I know what I was gonna say. Okay. Do you remember when um we were talking about um evolution, and I was talking about that guy Lamarck, Jean Baptiste Lamarck. 
he was the guy that that said uh, that traits could be traits that you developed during your lifetime you could pass on to your children okay. and that's that's what we call epigenetics now yeah and it's an actual science but for all of the basically since the days of darwin um nobody believed that was true um and now that we have this this epigenetics stuff that we talk about and it, science is actually um uh, proving legit that you've got these theories, these Lamarckian theories that people wrote off and, and thought were nonsense for a, for a few hundred years that are now being inserted into the scientific narrative, that they're going back to these these theories that were proved false hundred, 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 a couple hundred years back. That's and they're now And they're now bringing it back to, as a relevant piece of the scientific narrative. And that's, that's exactly what you were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. That's Lamarckian? Lamarck, yeah. Jean-Baptiste okay. Lamarck. Jean, I'm going to have to look that up more. Um so, Hoffman says, I said earlier that I think it's a legitimate goal for scientists to try to find a true theory. So, I don't think there's a contradiction in the following sense. On the one hand, I think it's a legitimate goal. On the other hand, I don't think we've ever succeeded. Mm. Also, I don't think that we could ever prove our theories true. And I also, in many cases, don't believe that we could ever absolutely prove a theory false. I would say that Newton is not right. But he's not totally wrong. So when I go after a deeper theory, what I want is a theory outside of space and time that doesn't even use the actual predicates, space and time, Hilbert spaces, none of those concepts that we have in our current physics. Mm. So. I love that. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, this, you know, it's talking about thinking outside of the box. Yeah, it's like what Einstein's theories did to Newton's. Mm-hmm was to explain them in a different way than Newton did and put them in a larger context that explains more. Mm-hmm. And what he's basically saying is, let's see that done again. Let's see, let's see somebody take Einstein and Newton, explain them in a, in a different way that puts them in a larger framework that explains ev- even more or everything. Yeah, exactly. Say. You know, he's saying that's what we need, something that, that takes away all these mistaken notions that, that uh, Newton had about... Um, gravity and, ex- and and perfected them with Einstein. We're going to have to perfect that with this new thing. And yeah. wh- who knows what that is, dude? I I didn't send you like my. No- I just sent you the Hoffman quotes. I didn't send you the stuff in between. And yeah. like, it's like you had the notes on. That was that <laughs> yeah. was crazy. I'm part of your. I'm in your mind. That was great. So uh, Hoffman follows that up by saying, "As a scientist, I'm hoping that it's getting close to the truth, and I think it's a legitimate hope." But I'll also confess, can I know that I've gotten there? I don't think so. Um, just calling attention to the fact that, like I said, this guy does not sound like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. No, he doesn't. I want to call attention to this. So The fact that you and I could read the same stuff mm-hmm. and come up with thoughts, our unique thoughts, mm-hmm. when we write them down and compare notes, so much of the stuff overlaps. I think that would be closer between you and I than between, you know, me and my twin sister, or even maybe even between me and my wife, yeah. Because it, because you and I share all of the same references, sure. So when when like so we sh- we have so many of the same experiences because we grew up together yeah. that when we see things or th- or have a thought, it's tied to so many of the same things. Yeah. That it's it's crazy how how much alike we think, and I wonder how how much that has to do with spending so much time together through our lives. And during, I mean, we were together from being small children to now, so all of, like, the most formative parts, you all know? Of it. 
Yeah, so and that, we, that's... And we shared exactly the same culture, and we occupied exactly the same space for a lot of time. Yeah. And all the same people, and, and, and I don't know, man. Yep, that is interesting. Sorry to derail. That's cool, man. Um, so after that that rant that Hoffman goes on, Thaddeus says that he'll stay now because that was great. <laughs> uh, he's, you know, just all of the nothing can ever be proven, um, all of that stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. One second, I'm sorry. I got these notes. Uh, I, I made them hard to read for myself because I'm so retarded. This this stuff about these that a theory can never be proven. What it makes me think of is that whatever the whatever the truth is that's trying to be proven mm-hmm. is not a static thing. It's always changing. Yep. And that that's what reminds me of the fractal thing. It's it's something that's always changing. Mm-hmm. Um. And even when we were talking about scientific theories progressing and then a revolution happening that takes us in a different direction, it, it, the, the image that, w- that was happening in my head while you were talking was like a line progressing uh, in, you know, in the vertical direction. And then it represents the course of this scientific theory as it grows. And Newton reaches to Einstein and it kicks off to the right. Mm-hmm. And then that progresses for a while till it changes again and it kicks off again. And it's like that growth pattern that I'm describing is the same pattern in my head where a nautilus shell grows in. Oh, yeah. It's like yeah. the same pattern. Hell, yeah. You know what I mean? I like that. That's, that's where, my, that's where my, my mind is right that's now, beautiful. Kyle. You're like <laughs> Carl Sagan, dude. Yeah. Um, so Thaddeus asks him, if no theory has ever been correct in 100 years, uh, but you continue, you're still looking, you know, even though you don't believe that it can, you can even find the truth, you still keep looking. This is why. Uh, why do you do that? And isn't that so, sort of like a religious faith that you'll mm. eventually find truth? Um, and is it like an existential crisis for you, basically? Mm. Um, what do you think of that? That it's like a, a religious faith. The quest for truth. Oh, oh, absolutely. I think that there's something about that that is deeply at the heart of religious faith and other things it reminds me of uh, a Jungian thing it's called circumambulation did we talk about that before yeah with the, with the mandala yeah 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 it's like uh, it's like you have a, you like when we were talking about following your interests so you can imagine um, like I'll, I'll give you an example for myself well I'll just I'll just do a high level so you're following your interest and as you as you research this something that interests you more deeply you'll find something in it that that actually interests you even more and it kicks you off in a different direction and you follow that deeper and then finally you'll find something else that that oh yeah that's that's the thread and it kicks you off in a different direction and what the way Carl Jung describes that is like this um, it's like this like vortex or cyclone image where you're chasing this thing ever closer to the center and if you if you chase your interest you're just going to kind of wind closer and closer to this truth that you're ne- that you'll never actually get to yep and it's called circumambulation okay i like that word yeah uh that thing you just said made me think of i i i'm a weird person but it made me think of Chasing like your interest all around, I, I think of like people watching porn. Yeah, you know? like you've got this wide world yeah. of all this stuff that you never would have been able to watch or even fucking think of. Yep. you know, 
And then you just like start like you know perusing <laughs> yeah. around, and you're just like circling a drain, yeah. you know. Yeah, you find things in it. You're like, oh, what's Ooh, this? I like that. They, 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 like you never knew that. Now you had I'm this into thing f- about you. you yeah. Know, now I'm into poo poo. That's exactly. That's <laughs> dude. That's but that's another example of why I'm calling it fractal because what yeah. I just described and what you just described are legitimate examples of the same pattern that sure. I'm talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. That's fucking interesting, man. Um, oh, you asked me what I thought about that. Oh yeah, um, and I wrote down more perfect, and the reason I wrote down more perfect is that line from uh, uh, no, now I'm bra- brain farting on a on a um, more perfect uh, the, con- the Constitution yeah, is that yeah. it or the Declaration? I can't remember. Shit. Anyway, I think it's the Constitution. That I that idea that that the American experiment was an attempt to form a more perfect union, and he's not suggesting that they can ever have a perfect system. Yeah. But this this time we're going to try to do it even better, and that the Constitution was able to be amended so that this process could continue, that we could continue to have a more and more perfect u- uh, union. But it's a never ending process. Yeah, and that's just another example. Never ending change. Damn, damn, that's interesting. Um, where was I? Okay, so it, the way that he answers that, he says, "I wake up champing at the bit." And there is a sense of discovery as you go. And it's also interesting to look back at all the beautiful theories that were believed. Newton was believed for centuries to be the final word. In the 1890s, Lord Kelvin was telling people not to go into physics because they had it all nailed. Um, that's interesting. That's, that quote is what reminded me of Neil deGrasse. The, la- oh, yeah. the, oh. last, the last time we were having the conversation about him, mm-hmm. and I was explaining how he said... These are the wrong questions to ask. Yes. If you ask these questions, it's because you don't understand what I, what I've been telling you. That that you know. Anyway, that that's what it reminds me of. Yep. Um, it makes me think of, uh, you know, there's like obviously crossover between science and history, but um, it makes me think of Graham Hancock. I mean, mm. Thaddeus and this guy are actually like academics, but and. You know, Graham Hancock is a journalist, basically. Um, But the way the uh, kind of traditional academics just write Graham Hancock off, it reminds me of this. Yes. You know? Yes. Um, He says he doesn't want to be overconfident and feel like we've got it. You know, he said that's silly. Um, He says you can't falsify things, but you can get a pretty good idea of what's not going on. You can get degrees of belief on things that are pretty low. One thing I do find is an inveterate need of human beings to tell stories. Interesting. Thaddeus really liked that. Um, So he says, the question is, what kind of stories do I want to tell? Stories that can be stated precisely enough that we can get evidence that my story was probably wrong. Or stories that no matter what you say, I can always sort of dodge and weave and you can never really pin anything down. It's a question of motivations. Do I really want to have a deep understanding about who I am and what this is all about? Or do I just want to be right? Mm. I don't want to be right. I would rather face my ignorance and try to stare things, state things with such precision that others can tell me where I'm probably wrong and get me to agree that I'm probably wrong. Then I've learned something. Yes, because that's great, man. Because knowledge is a process. That's the thing, man. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just like that facts aren't static. The more we learn, the more we know. And as Jordan Peterson says, you know, when you, re- when you revolutionize something like that, that it, 
it will redefine what something means. Like, oh, we thought it meant this, but it oh, it always deep down meant, meant actually meant this. Yeah. Like we re we can redefine things that you know, and, and more than just psychically. Like you know, I don't know. Yeah, uh, I was thinking that he says that he doesn't want to be right. He just wants to, uh, you know. What did he say? I would rather face my ignorance. Yes. Uh, so I think a lot of people, again, especially these scientism types, uh, they don't want to face their ignorance. They would much rather just be right. You know what I oh, mean? Oh, yeah. Um, and I, I don't know. I just think that that's uh, another like interesting way that this guy doesn't seem like just the the mainstream view of what science is. Do do you think those people, like you're calling them the scientism type people, but mm-hmm. we all know the the uh, follow the science people. Yeah. You know, do you think that those people that put such such like ultimate faith in science and rationality that th- those people take um, comfort from the idea that there's a that there's a you know that there's a final answer that 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 science provides. You know, uh, black and white, no more gray. That that those people take comfort and solace in that. Um, like like even even somebody you can imagine somebody taking solace in the idea that God doesn't exist as they're in their deathbed mm-hmm. because they don't have to worry about hell. Yeah. It's like you know, um, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that. Um. Yeah, I don't know either, but I mean, I was interested in it. You know, just like the idea of somebody taking uh, away the, their death anxiety, oh. fear of death, because because you can explain everything with science and don't have to oh, worry oh, about oh, it. Oh, I see what you, you mean. You take the mystery out because every science explains it all. I don't have to be worried about death. It's yeah. just, you know how those those sorts of atheists are. It's just lights out. It's just the end, you yeah. know. It, you know, what's the big deal kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, how much different is that than you go to heaven and then everything's fine? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mean, Both explanations are comforting to somebody yeah. who has death anxiety. Absolutely. You know? Um, Any answer is better than no answer. Absolutely. I guess, is that the difference between like most people and this guy? Because he seems like he would rather just, I mean... It, Find out if you can, but I don't know if you do. I don't know. If yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the, the, that guy seems to be somebody who would be on his deathbed with his eyes wide open, experiencing the answer to this question in real time and being thrilled about it, yeah. but dying so that he can uh, empirically observe what's going, what's happening. Yeah, that might that might be me, by the way. Could be. Yeah, when the time comes, that's going to be an interesting experience. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what that's going to be like. Scary. You think so? Uh, I mean, I guess it depends. I don't know. Sometimes I think that it won't be, but sometimes I think that it will be. I have less and less fear about pain because I've had, I've been injured like seriously enough times in my life to know that your body, well, first of all, will only allow you to feel so much pain before you black out. It's like there's a limit to it. Sure. Um, And your body also has a way of like numbing you, whether it be shock or you know, nerve damage or something like your body has a way of like either turning out the lights or, or shutting off the pain. If it's really bad. Yeah. I'm not scared. Like, like when I die that it's going to be painful. Okay. Um, I'm, uh, and I used to be scared. Like, like I said before about 
the story being over and the universe disappearing. Yeah. Um, but I'm not anymore. So now I'm, I, I would honestly think on my deathbed, I would, would be one of those people that thinks, you know, this is like a novel experience I'm getting ready to have. I've never done this before. This is, I, I, I'd be like, you know, I'm being a little facetious, but a little excited, you know? It's like, sure. we're going to do something new. What is this? I'm more or less with you on that. I was thinking about it while you were talking about that stuff, and I guess I'm more afraid of, like, I don't want to, like, break break my leg and then have, like, a slow death. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, uh, I don't want to live to be, like, 68 and then... Uh, you know, I'm fine and capable, and then I have to spend like two or three years just like rotting, yeah. like sitting, you know. So I get, but that's not really death. That's like poor quality of life. The actual yeah. death, the, at that point, the death is like, please. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And that's a route. That's a crazy point to be in. See, that's interesting because I think, <coughs> excuse me, I think that happens more than we probably realize, especially because people live so, so long nowadays that by the time you get to death's door, you know, you're riddled with arthritis. You you know, you got inflammation. You got all kinds of pain. The cancer's eating you to death. Those people, you can't sleep. You can't shit. Yeah. You can't, I mean, it, you know, at some point, it death sort of starts to seem a little bit welcome. And it reminds me of, like, watching my wife um, when she was, like, getting ready to have a baby, when she was, like, maxed out. And she's just, like, her, her whole attitude about the fear of it, even the first time, changed. And she's like, I don't even care. Just get it. Just get it out. Get it done. I'm done with this. I'm over. The, I'm over the fear. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of an, that's the that's the analogy that I'm trying to bring to the table. All right. Yeah. That is interesting. Um. So to close out this part here, because uh, next we're going to get into them actually questioning reality, because this has been more about questioning science than it has about questioning reality. Yes. Okay, so and I have some things to say about that. About questioning science, science about questioning science, about the about the scientific and the and the mythic interpretation of the world. Okay, um, I'll, well, I'll tell. That's interesting because I'm gonna. I th- I thought Thaddeus kind of summed up that part we were just talking about pretty well. Yeah. Uh, he says this. He says, "Theories are a set of stories that populate our consciousness." Our culture and our discourse. It's the way we think it makes... I'm sorry. Uh, It's the way we think. It makes the way we think richer, more complex, and more interesting. It makes life more interesting, even if it's flat-out dumb and wrong, whatever, like the biblical stories. They still animate the way we think and still structure the way we think, even though most of us don't believe in Noah's Ark. It makes life better, even for the people who believe the wrong stories. Mm. There's a lot in there. Yeah, I mean, I don't believe that the biblical stories are wrong and dumb. No, he's um, he's not saying that. He's saying that even even if you believe those are dumb, you can believe they're dumb. Those people are still getting something from them. Yeah, as what? No, he, okay, know. yeah, I got gotcha, you, got gotcha. you. No, that I, that I can dig. That I can dig. Uh, I think it's interesting the, the talking about stories, narrative, because that's how we understand our lives. You know, we understand, we see, we see people around us um, grow old and die, and are and and be born, and we see the cycle starting, and we see it every every time we look around, we see it in various stages of development. Mm-hmm. We see the story like we see the seasons change. And the the story we tell about the Earth spinning around the Sun is the same story we tell about 
you know, our birth and death. It's it's all around us. This the narrative of beginning, middle, and end. It's it's all around us. You know, down to the down to the atom at its half life. It's decaying ever closer to death. You know, it's like everything is like that. So story is so important. Yeah. It's and I don't exactly know why, but it's like seemingly ingrained into reality. Yeah. That is very interesting. And I think it's super interesting to think of these scientific theories as stories. Mm. You know, like these biblical stories or these whatever stories, you know, it's like a story that has, you know, it's got this outline and you can gain certain things from it. uh, And that it, it like gives you guidance as to how to act in the world. And that's like what these these scientific theories are, too. Yeah, it's like all they are. It's funny because uh, the way you just explained that um, is is how Jordan Peterson defines meaning. Okay, He's, he says meaning is implication for action. Meaning so, is implication for action. Yes, yes. He says what things mean tell you how to act. Oh, okay, okay. It's interesting, man. That is interesting. That I mean, that seems. Like a true statement. Yeah, I mean, I uh, well, I don't want to steal too much of my thunder because I talk about this in my maps and meeting is coming so it's out. Like it's coming out on the top. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. All right, so we're gonna get into them questioning reality. Okay. Yes, I can't wait. This is another. This is a uh, another quote by Hoffman here. Uh, he says, "I've got a white cup sitting in the table on the table in front of me, and it has a cylindrical shape, a handle on it, and it's glossy and so forth." I can reach out and touch this cup, and most people would say that I experience the white cup. I experience the shape. I experience the feeling of it. If I close my eyes and don't touch it, though my experience changes, my visual field is now just a gray field. Most of us would believe that even with my eyes closed, the cup is still there. There is still a cup. Yeah, there is still a cup whether any creature perceives it. Um... So then he says, you know, the proof of that is even with your eyes closed, you can like reach out and grab it. Uh, I could ask you, I could close my eyes and say, hey, Chris, is there a cup sitting there? Mm. And you're like, yeah, there's a cup sitting there. Yep. Um, and he says that the this, this like, I had to listen to this a couple times to really understand what he was saying here. How you would pick up and say, this cup is here with like your sensory perception and logic and reason to to figure out this cup is definitely here that he says that's the same way that we look to see if space time is here it's like there's not it's nothing deeper than that it's just like oh this is here you know you, you know what that reminds me of <clears throat> it reminds me of this thing we talked about before about about projection yeah oh we're getting go ahead though <clears throat> okay so no i'm i'm just i'm just saying like the way that jordan peterson explained projection like you have to you have to project some sort of a psychic scaffolding before you can experience before you can have an experience there's something that happens first in your in your mind that makes that experience possible and it's very very interesting and there's scientific proof about this through EEG scans where they can see activity happening in your brain immediately before a sensory input stuff like that like some crazy crazy shit um, I'm getting a little bit off track here what, 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 uh, rein me back in Kyle where was I going with that um, we were talking about uh, like 
using sensory perception and logic and reason, like these oh. basic tools to see that that space time is here. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's so so it, it, it may be that that's being that even something like space time is um, is being projected somehow somehow um, as a function of consciousness before it before it's before it's real somehow. It's like it's like that that uh, that paradox from um, from physics that we talked about, um, uh, you know, about the uh, the uncertainty principle. It's like that is the, is the cat alive or dead in the box? It's both at the same time. It's like one of those sorts of sorts of scenarios that that the pro, the projection of space and time um, pre exists the space time. You know, like I, I I have to imagine it somehow in my psyche before it's real. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Okay, <laughs> um, smiling, because guys, uh, th- of what's coming up, will no. you stick? Put a pin in that. All right. Uh, projection. Got it. Yeah. Put a pin in that. We're coming up to it. Um, okay. So Hoffman says you might ask why? Why should we be so sure that our perceptions are telling us truths? The truths we need about the shapes and colors of objects in space and time. One classic argument that many scientists have given is an evolutionary argument. Those of us whose ancestors' perceptions and sensory systems reported the world more accurately had a competitive advantage compared to those whose sensory systems reported less accurately. Okay? Mm-hmm. So seeing the truth makes you more fit. Survival of the fittest. Yep. Okay? Um, and he says when you put it that way, that sounds like a slam dunk. You know? Um Hold on, I want to give an example for the audience here. This would be like um, this would be like a, a set of human beings that didn't see color, and a set of human beings who were born who could see color. The ones that could tell what fruit was ripe because they could see color would survive over the ones that couldn't. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, you're bringing bringing <laughs> home that that ripe apple to My, your babies. Oh yeah. Um. So. And that is the view of most of science, science people, scientism people. Um, that's the prevailing view. Uh, so Hoffman studied evolutionary game theory. Boy. And evolution, like everything, breaks down mathematically. I don't have any fucking clue what that even means, really. Yep. But he says that it does, and I'm just going to take his word for it. Um Evolutionary game theory allows you to basically simulate uh, evolution. It's like, um, like I imagine, like uh, those like mili- those tabletop military games. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, for um, evolution. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, he said they did simulations, and this is a quote: "With random worlds, with random resources, and random creatures in the world, that we could determine what they saw, what they perceived." All of the truth in the world or none of the truths. They could just perceive the fitness payoffs as Mm. opposed to truth. In a video game, you have to collect points to level up. If you don't concentrate on collecting the points, you won't level up and you will die. It's sort of like that in evolution, but instead of game points, it's fitness payoffs. A hamburger for a man who is starving has a lot of fitness payoffs. For a man who's full and looking to mate, a hamburger is not good. A hamburger in any state will not help a cow. Uh, so, what I mean, that's pretty interesting that it's not, I mean, it's not so much about... I, I, 
basically what I'm saying is uh, what I'm what I think is interesting is thinking of existing as like a game. You know what I mean? Oh, uh, yeah. As like a competition. I, I mean, I know that evolution and stuff that it kind of entails levels of competition, but just thinking of it as like I don't know, like a game to me is interesting. Yeah, man. You know what it reminds me of is there's there's something called a Monte Carlo simulation. Okay. And I talked about this. I might have talked about this once before, uh, but it's this thing in fi- in finance and like modern finance theory. Okay. Where there's a basically a computer program and it does this. It says, okay, um, what I what I'm gonna do is is plug your money in whatever amount of money you want to invest. I'm gonna plug it in these different types of investments. And uh, this is this is like my model portfolio. And then I'm going to let the computer run um, a fake series of years about um, what the stock market will likely do based on certain um, assumptions. And then you and then you change the assumptions and you run the test and you change the assumptions and you run the test and you change the assumptions and you run the test and you do it hundreds of thousands of times. Okay. And what the average will do is give you basically the ideal portfolio to to construct so that you can manage the risk of all of these various hypothetical scenarios over the next 10 years yeah. that, that you can, that you can somehow manage to do that. That's what it reminds me of. It's like um, every time a human being is born with a different, slightly different shakeup of the genetic dice, you're like a new simulation. You're like another one of those tests that's being run. You see what I'm that saying? That is interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, cause there's a whole lot of us. There's a whole lot of us. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he's talking about these fitness payoffs and he says that they are contingent on a lot of things and that they're very complex functions. They're um, contingent on the world that they exist in, the organisms that they're a fitness payoff for, hmm. uh, the situation. Um, so that's in a, the, the fitness payoff thing. It's like... It's like grabbing the co- the coins in Mario. I was thinking about this. <laughs> so when you get the coins in Mario, what did what were they good for? I don't even remember. You, if you got a hundred, you got an, an extra life, Kyle. Oh, did you? If you got a hundred coins. You got an. You got an. Okay, well there you go. You That's got a, a fitness payoff you got a, for sure. You got a one up or an extra right. man. You, yeah. You, you, okay, you, like you, the green mushroom would pop up on the screen. Yep, like a green All mushroom. Right. You might have you might have referred to that as an extra man. Yep. Yep. All right. That's a good answer because I did not know. Uh, so he says. What we found in our simulation was that organisms that saw the fitness payoffs always outcompeted equally complex organisms that were chasing the truth. If you do anything other than grab the fitness payoffs, you lose the game. So I love that. Um, <coughs> I love that. But where, but where my devil's advocate brain goes immediately is mm-hmm. you have one group that are seeking the payoff. Um, you have another group that's seeking the truth. What, what, what does that mean? What's the truth exactly? Because I don't think you could define it um, in any in any meaningful way. Certainly, you know what I mean. In a simulation, how would you define it? Okay, I, I think that they kind of answer that going okay, in yeah. here. So, um, and that kind of answers it. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of facetiously, I guess he's yeah. uh, he's cracking a joke a little bit. Yeah, okay, uh, but he says this is why intellectuals are poor. So basically, mm, mm, you're chasing mm. the the fitness payoffs. If you're something like a plumber, when you you know you have something to offer, um, so you get you're rewarded more. Yeah. Well, you compare that to like a 
like a somebody with a philosophy degree who was thinking big, big thoughts, yeah, and been working at a community college and making no money because they're they've been, because they've been dedicated their life to seeking the truth yeah. versus the plumber who dedicated his life to learning plumbing. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I he, get you. He talks about uh, in the in this podcast. It's not, I just cut this bit out, but he talks about like you can have a cup and you can grab the cup and use it to like drink out of or you can sit there and you can wonder about like the the molecular structure of the cup mm. and uh mm. you have to have a certain amount of leisure to do that you know what i mean um that's interesting because 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 jordan peterson uses the same example mm-hmm. and he says this he says that he says that the cup is something which is its material properties and all that and it also means something and what it means is, you know, if you put a cup down in front of you, like all of your instincts, so you just close your eyes, imagine that there's a cup in front of you, and you notice it. All of your instincts about what to do with that cup, those are the implication for action I was telling you about. Mm-hmm. When you look at that cup and you think, immediately you imagine yourself reaching out and grabbing it. It's something you can grab. You might you might look at it, you see it's hollow, it's something you can put something in. Yep. It's something you can maybe drink something from. Yep. And all of those things that occur to you that you could you could use it for those are its meaning so he says everything is something and means something and then this is all this is the awesome part he says that the difference is something that people don't distinguish so what something is and what it means are one thing <coughs> are one thing oh. to us even though what something is is a pile of atoms and what something means is a cup i can drink from and and in our minds we don't make a distinction that's super interesting isn't that yeah that's cool and as you, hell and you never think about it that way but yeah. it's the truth man that is cool as hell um so oh and he says what the thing means is quicker to you than what it is that makes sense i i can Absolutely, and you you can imagine like predator. You have to know what a oh, predator yeah. is even before you see it exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's like what things mean you get instantly, that's quick a, quicker than your senses. That's cool. Isn't that cool? That's what does cool it mean? It's a mystery, dude. Kyle. All right. Cool as hell. Keep going. Uh, so Thaddeus asks him if space and time aren't reality, then what are they? And Hoffman says, "How should we think about our perceptions? What role are they playing?" Uh, I like to think of them as a user interface or a virtual reality. Yes. Virtual reality is so immersive and compelling now that it's not a stretch when you take the headset off to wonder, what about this? Mm. Is this just a headset? Dude, where does your mind go with that image? Like you, like you're sitting there with a the VR headset on that you're so used to. It's like the the real reality is in this headset. Yeah. Then you just take a breath for a second. You take the headset off. You see this whole other reality all around you, and you think for a second, what is this? And yeah. then you go back to then you go back to the headset. Yeah. What does that remind you of? The Matrix to me. Does it? Yep. It also reminds me of DMT. Oh, DMT. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. That now that now I see exactly what you're saying. Um. That's very interesting. And this is something I, I think that the next couple of quotes are, are sort of related to this, and I don't know if I'm jumping the gun, but I, there's something I want to say about uh, this idea of taking off this VR headset. So, like, if you have a mystic experience, this is what I'm talking about, whether it's psychedelic or whatever, however you get there. You have this mystic experience, and it's like taking off the VR headset. And what you're seeing is objective reality. What you're seeing is something that's really real. Um, and it confronts you with this, with the reality of, of the fact that you that there, you were once in a headset because you can see the distinction now. 
Oh yes. And and what you see in in the in the real objective world, and I, I'm just going to use an, an analogy because it's the best I can do. Do you remember Terminator Two? Yep. Of course. And that was the one where the bad guy was made of that molten yeah. uh, metal that could yeah. change shape. Give me your clothes, your boots, <laughs> and your motorcycle. <laughs> Sorry, okay. go ahead. Okay, so imagine, imagine that when you take off the VR headset, that the objective reality, the thing behind your perceptions, imagine that all of that all around you is what that guy's made of. Just that shifting. Just that shifting. Can be anything. Could be anything, yes. Yeah. Something about that image, something about what I'm saying to you, Kyle, right now, is very, very close <coughs> to the truth of of the mystic experience. It's it's re- resonating with me right now. It's like mm-hmm. it's like resonating with me that what I'm what I'm telling you right now. What I, if you guys are pay listen and pay attention? That something about that that what what things really are are potential. Everything is. We got we got some shit coming up for that too, bro. Oof, it's something that could be anything. Very interesting. And consciousness is what makes it what it is. It's what collapses the wave function and changes the potential into the actual. Who is the scientist who talks about the wave function stuff? Originally, Niels Bohr. Niels Bohr. Yeah. Who's the like the pop scientist who has been on like Rogan and talked about oh, it? Oh, was it uh, Green? Is it Brian Green? And there's another dude, Br- Brian Green, and um, is it Campbell? Is there a Cam- Sean Carroll? Sean Carroll. That's and, right. And th- that's who it is. Sean Carroll. And that's an- another thing is that uh, Sean Carroll got me hooked up to this guy named Philip Goff. Yes, who's this? Who's this physicist? Panpsychist panpsychist guy. Yeah, and he spends a whole bunch of time in his in his book, talking about how there's this scientific way of of looking at the world, and then there's this gap and what science can't cover, and it's all the subjective stuff. Like, science can't explain why why food tastes the way it does. Well, we're coming up to that shit too, buddy. So 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 Philip Goff did a bunch of talking about that, and so did Jordan Peterson. Like the first half of Maps of Meaning, it's like. It's just interesting that all of this stuff coincides. So I'm sorry. I'm just no, no, pointing it out. That's super interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all going to become relevant again, too. Let's, so. let's keep going, then. Um, so he says, our, our sensory systems function like a headset. For this reality, just like the VR guy... I'm sorry. Let me start over. Uh, our sensory systems function like a headset for this reality, just like the VR goggles function as a headset for that virtual reality. Mm. So our senses aren't a window to the world. They're a VR goggle that is essentially hiding objective reality, whatever yes. that might be. So, dude, this is what I mean. What, what, we are, what we encounter in the world are projections. That's the thing. Yep. That's the thing, man. Projections. That, so that word again. Whatever it is that's behind the projections is the real thing. I, it's the, that's what I would call consciousness. But when I reach out and touch you and when you, you hear my voice and all that stuff, this is all projection. Now, there's something about that that is so true that, again, resonates with me. But when, when I have to explain what that means, I, I don't even know where to begin. Yeah. I don't have the words for it. I don't, I mean, I think I kind of understand what it means, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't understand it well enough to explain it at all. I mean... I don't I don't even think I understand it. That's bullshit. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I don't think I understand it. All right. Um Okay, so yeah, I said that it's a VR headset that's hiding objective reality. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh so Thaddeus asks him 
how are the interfaces hiding reality? And he says, they're hiding it in the same way that a desktop on your computer hides all the circuits and software and voltages and magnetic fields. Mm. If you're writing an email, you don't have to toggle voltages. You don't have to know anything about the CPU and the memory and all that stuff. Mm. You could even disbelieve in circuits and software <laughs> and still use the computer. That's awesome. That's what evolution did for... Oh, I think this is a... I'll just... I mean, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, that's what evolution did for us. The point is to keep you alive long enough to reproduce. Um, yeah, man. Yep. Sorry, go Did you have something no, to say? No, I'm disagreeing with him. Okay. So, he says, this is what evolution says, but he's already said that he doesn't, like, believe evolution to be true. You know what I mean? So, uh, why, why, like, why take it seriously in this? And he says that uh, it's the best thing we have. Like, exactly. It, it's what we have to use right yeah. now. It's the, so it's I think the, that's interesting. It's the most complete truth we have to date. Yeah. He said it doesn't it doesn't mean that you believe that that theory is truth like people will tell you that it is it just means that's the best tool for the job. Mm. Dude, I think that is that is at the heart of of the problem is that people think that truth is a static thing. Yeah. And I don't think that's the case. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think truth is like everything. Yep. It's constantly transforming. Absolutely. <sighs> I think you know like people have Problems with the word God. Yep. I think the people should have problems with the word truth. Absolutely. Yeah. And for all the same reasons. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so he says, does this, you know, does this theory that has a, it's got a lot of use. He says, does this theory make any clean predictions about our sensory systems and their relationship to truth? And the theory does. It makes the clean prediction that the probability is zero that our senses even have the right language to describe objective reality. I think that's true. Yeah, he says the language of space and time is all wrong. You could not possibly describe whatever the truth might be in that language. I, I just have what's Chris think about that? Right here. <laughs> I think that's true, man. I think I think you you have all these people that are trying to come up with a grand unified theory that um, propose all kinds of crazy, well, I say crazy, but what do I know? Things like string theory about there being um, some, you know, all kinds of different dimensions, maybe like 12 dimensions or whatever it is, and, and maybe there's you know, uh, X number of universes or maybe an infinite number of mu a multiverse or whatever, mm -hmm. that, that all that sort of thing is like, try, it's like doing that. It's trying to replace this idea of space-time as the structure of reality with something else. It's it's poking at some creative solution to the problem, which is interesting, man. It's like those theoretical physicists are the ones doing the hero's work in, in physics. They're, they're the ones going out into the unknown, yeah. proposing hypothetical scenarios that might better explain the theory. Yeah. And by the way, those theoretical guys are scoffed at by all the practical physicists that are out there doing real work at the Large Hadron Collider and all that shit. Those people are scoffing at the philosophers in the theoretical departments that don't that don't do real physics. Yeah. You know, uh, I think I can't remember. I think it was last week on the Timothy Leary episode we were talking about the different types of scientists, and there are the really creative fucking awesome mm, people yep. and then there are the bean counters yes that's it. yep uh and neil degrasse tyson's a bean counter mm. um our good th uh, he said and this is 
this is getting to an important part of his uh where he's drawing his conclusions about space and time to uh what am i trying to say why he's drawing his conclusions about space and time he says our good theories tell us where they stop where the limits of their explanation are and mm. that's what we have to do as scientists when i see a theory that can tell me where its limits are that is a theory that i admire uh a theory can't explain a theory that can explain incredi an incredibly broad range of data but says, but I can't explain this. That's almost like a religious experience for me. This is an honest story. It says, I can do all of this stuff well. Uh, evolution can do so many things very, very well. And now one of the things that it's saying is that we do not see the truth with our senses. Mm. You know what that reminds me of? What's that? Do you remember when we talked? Well, actually, it was this was our first podcast about a podcast. We were talking about Peterson and McGilchrist. And do you remember when McGilchrist said something that blew my effing mind? Do you remember when he said that maybe the laws of physics are also evolving? Oh, yeah. So if you're a scientist and you're trying to study the laws that govern the universe, but over humongous stretches of time, those laws actually change... That in, from our perspective, we wouldn't we wouldn't necessarily be able to notice that, yeah. and maybe that's why none of our fucking formulas are working. That's interesting as hell. <laughs> and if you could, dude, and if you could find out, that's fucking. If crazy. you could find out what the pattern of change was, like, is there a pattern in the change? Is it an orderly change? Maybe that's a deeper mystery, even even still. That if we if we knew that the laws of of, of physics actually did evolve, and we could and we could kind of rewind that to see how it how it happened, then there's a pattern there. Mm -hmm. Then there's a story there, Kyle. Yep. Jesus, man. Turtles all the way down, baby. Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, okay. That's what the theory of ev this is a quote. That's what the theory of evolution is telling us that we. We're going to have to go deeper. In particularly, it's saying... In, I can't read. In particular, it's saying to me, you have to go outside of space and time completely. And that means you have to let go of everything inside space and time. Mm. This is just your desktop, a user interface. You evolve these senses to keep you alive, full stop, not to tell you anything about the truth. Uh, and then this kind of harkens back to when you were talking about you know the the laws of physics evolving, and if it's this uh, like a if it's on like a cycle, we would never be able to know because we're just too temporary. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So he says, <clears throat> it makes me think of this quote that he says: "Did evolution give us?" the concepts that we need as scientists to even grasp a deeper theory. Yes. So he's talking about concepts, but we're talking about like physics, you know, like we could never know. It's yeah, you're ch you're chasing a moving target. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting, man. Um that is interesting. I think we just solved the quantum riddle right now right, right now on the podcast. <laughs> so, uh they they have this little interesting aside that doesn't take very long about solipsism, you know what that is? I've heard the word before, but I'd like you to define it and so, say it in a sentence and then spell it. Um, solipsism is a philosophy, um, is, a, is a philosophical idea, and it's the idea that you are the only thing that exists and everything else is just a projection of your consciousness. I love it. Okay. Um, so they're talking about... 
all that I have direct experience of is my own conscious experiences, but it's a reasonable leap for me to assume that you're not just a robot going through the motions. Right. Thaddeus says it's a reasonable article of faith, I would mm. say. And Hoffman agrees. Uh, and that's just another one of those situations where people are utilizing faith. Like, oh, yeah. you could be an automat, you could be a projection of yes. my kind. And I know that sounds like some hippie, crazy stuff. But it could easily be true. Yep, it would be it would be impossible to prove uh, otherwise yeah. that I am not a figment of your imagination, and yet you encounter me, and uh, your instinct is that I am a, am, am, am a um, like you am a autonomous conscious separate consciousness. Yep, that's amazing. Um, he says. One could say I believe it so strongly that I'd be a fool not to, but that is different than saying I have absolute proof. I don't have proof. I would be stunned to find out – I would be stunned to find data that I'm wrong, but I don't have proof. Uh, dealing with probabilities is the safer realm. I feel like that's great advice. Yeah. I, uh, I, I think the question that could be answered a little bit creatively here – that to say that um, I encounter you and and have faith that you are a unique consciousness that you actually exist, you know, and you're a unique consciousness. Imagine this: imagine that you drop a, a pebble in a pond and you watch the rip, the ripples. Now, imagine consciousness is not any of the ripples; it's the process that that the ripples are coming from. So every ripple might represent an individual human being, let's just say, for simplicity. And, and every one of those human beings are separate ripples, but you're all, you're all, just, you're all just projections of the process. You're all, you're all just project. So what I'm saying is that there's one consciousness there, even though there are infinite ripples. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. That when I look at you and, and presume that you're also a conscious creature, what... what, what the truth that's actually hidden there is that I'm conscious and so are you, but that consciousness is the same thing. It's not like it's not like I have some faith that you're a separate yeah. consciousness. It's that you and I are the same consciousness. Yeah. That's the sort of hippie that I go to in, in that and I'm trying to understand that. It's a hard thing to understand. And you can only explain it in like analogies. And I so often have to like draw pictures for people because I, I can't I, there's no words. Uh I've I was thinking about this in one of the previous podcasts. Oh, it was when we were talking about Ian McGochris and Jordan Peterson, and I was, I was like making fun of Jordan Peterson. I wasn't really. I feel like you took it personally. I was, I was when he was saying, "It's like you're building a little machine," <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I, like, I totally agreed with what he was saying. I just think that he is such like a character. You oh know? yeah, and it's like you're building a little. It just cracked me up. Yeah, this just recently he he was doing a, uh, an interview and he said, yeah, he's like, yeah, somebody. Somebody brought it to my attention how much I sound like Kermit the Frog. Yeah. So then I went and I listened to listened to it. Now I can't stop hearing it. I sound That's like Kermit hilarious. the Frog. Um, but I, what made me think of that is he is like constantly talking in metaphors. Like, oh yeah. Always. Dude, that that's what I noticed about me. Yeah. When after I had that mystic experience, I started thinking more in pictures. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. and that's why. And this is the thing, man. You can contain so much more meaning in pictures than you can in like hard and hard and, and true like 
like ideas or or or, or sentences. Like they, you know, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. You you finish what you're saying. It, it just seems like I the the capacity for meaning in ideas and experiences has been has been amplified since I had this mystic yeah. experience to where the way I used to think is insufficient, and now I think in pictures more. Yeah, or in analogies. That pictures and analogies thing it makes me think of. Um, like you, like when we were talking about um, reacting to like a predator. Yeah. Like you're just, it's like instinct. I mean, not instinct. I mean, I guess it is instinct, but um, that image, it like it, it hits you quicker. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Isn't that weird, man? It is weird. You know what Jordan would say? He would say that the image is mapped directly onto your nervous system. Yeah. That, that's what he would say. That that. So imagine this. Imagine like you're a pattern recognition machine because our brains kind of are. Mm-hmm. And then like, or imagine that you're paying, you're playing a game of slapjack. You remember slapjack? Yeah. You get a whole deck of cards and you put them down. And as soon as you get a jack, you slap your hand down. Whoever gets their hand down quickest wins. That kind of thing. Um, it's like that. It's like the pattern recognition. As soon as your, as soon as your, um, your senses pick up on a pattern, and that pattern is predator. Let's say. Mm-hmm. That that is is directly stimulates your nervous system in a particular way. It's interesting as hell, isn't that? A, it, so it's just it's like the image cr- causes the reaction quicker even than your eyes can translate what's going on, and that's why you jump away from a snake even before you quite knew it was a snake, kind of thing. Yeah, it's amazing. And and like I mean that that phenomena covers like everything. Like I mean you visually react to like. I mean, not everything, but like almost everything. It's responsible for like mating. You know, oh, you yeah. see like a beautiful woman. Um, it's just all, you know. It's it's amazing. It's like, it's like I, I'm 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 just imagining like uh, intense moments from like my sort of puppy love days, like the very first experience you had. You know, uh, maybe not even sexual, really, but just the first sort of intimate and emotional experiences you have with another human being. And I can and I can see like. Um, having those feelings for the first time for the first time and i can and i can imagine like i that there is a pattern that i am picking up on from this situation that triggers the the like um physi- physiochemical things that are happening in my body during this love <laughs> during, during this love experience and that they're and that they're being triggered by my nervous system recognizing a pattern. Yeah. It's like, you know, God, and it is instinct. It absolutely, especially in this example, we're talking about this instinct that's like being born in you at puberty that's telling you that's telling you to procreate, basically. Yeah. Um, that's, it's amazingly interesting and mysterious, man. It is. <sighs> uh, and it makes, uh, it makes the... The idea of art particularly interesting, you know? Yes. Um, God, yes. Yeah. But anyway, all right, let's get back to this. So this is kind of getting into the last part of this. Right. Uh, and it's this guy Donald Hoffman's theory of consciousness. There's this funny part. He says, Thaddeus says, he says to him, have we covered your theory of consciousness? And Donald Hoffman says, not at all. <laughs> just, <laughs> just the way he says it just makes me chuckle every time I hear it. Um, like Ron so, Burgundy? Just something like that, yeah. Uh, so Thaddeus says, so what could be outside of space and time? And Hoffman says, uh, it's hard for us to even imagine because we think of ourselves as inside of space and time. 
And I want to turn the, that around and say, no, you aren't inside of space and time. You are the author of space time. You Ooh. create space time. It's part of the interface, the VR headset that you have on. Okay, stop really quickly because I'll forget right. this if you you're don't. Good. No, you're, that was the end of it. We create space time. So yeah. this is something that a guy named Robert Dykroff said that I brought up before on the physics podcast. Yeah. But this is a super crazy advanced physicist who works for the Institute for Advanced Studies in Europe, someplace doing crazy shit. And uh, Robert Dykroff said, he said that um, entanglement. He said that that could be what creates space and time. He said okay. it's the it's the interaction between entangled quantum particles that creates somehow Hilbert space. It creates space and time. Um, and the idea that that, it, that connects this this idea together is that what entangles particles together, and they explain this in physics is like uh, if a quantum event. Uh, creates two particles. Mm -hmm. The same event creates the two particles that they're entangled. So if one changes, the other one will change. It, it doesn't matter how far apart they are or what happens to them. They're always going to remain in the same state. And there's no explanation for it. That no, they, there's no scientific explanation for it. Mm. Well, and one of the things that I've suggested is that um, uh, is that the quantum event that created everything was was the Big Bang. So everything is entangled. Or another, okay. another explanation from a mystic perspective is that everything is one, <coughs> that everything is God. Yeah. So things are entangled, of course, because everything is God. Mm -hmm. So both of those explanations, and even that the, one of these uh, physicists, the super famous guys, John Wheeler, he had a theory called the single electron theory, which goes right along with this, where he said that the reason why electrons um, are, are identical, that, that they have the same charge, they're always identical, one of his like cr crazier fringer theories was that um, every electron in every atom is the same electron. Oh. So he said, you know, so so there's some of that. There's some of that going on. That's pretty interesting. Um, okay, so what did I just read? Uh, so yeah, so we create space time. That's his. Uh, the, the VR headset that we have you know, attached to our shoulders, you know, this like mm -hmm. sensory perception device that is our, our nervous, brains, yeah, our, our, yeah, our yeah, nervous exactly. system and sense organs. Yep. Yeah. Um, that creates space time. So that's interesting. Uh, and they'll develop that. Yeah. I was going to say, how, how could that be the only, because the only, the only thing that's happening is that consciousness is observing. Like the only thing that's happening when you, when you're, observing the world is that consciousness is observing consciousness as, as far as I'm concerned yeah. that this is this reflection idea that I brought up in the mystic experience episode that consciousness works on consciousness and changes as a consequence of it that that's like that process that I'm describing that really gives you no information but it gives you some sort of a scaffolding of what I'm talking about that there's an interaction between consciousness and itself yeah. that creates reality that yep. creates being yep that's super interesting um, and like references things that we'll be talking Ooh, about. All right, keep going. Um, <clears throat> so the thing that I have here is space time is doomed. And he says that a couple times on the podcast. And I feel like I'm going to send you down a rabbit hole that you might enjoy. Uh, I haven't gone to, I, I, I tried to watch some of the stuff, but uh, I didn't, didn't have a whole lot of time. 
but I'll probably check it out. This guy, he says to listen to or to check out his videos on YouTube. His name is Nima Arkani Hamed. And he says that this guy makes the case that uh, that quantum field theory, general and special relativity are telling us that space-time is doomed. Um, and well, we'll go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say, what, what is what does he mean by doomed? Does he mean that the theory that the theory doesn't represent reality correctly, or does he mean that there's going to be uh, some collapse of physics or something? Um, so I don't I don't really know how to answer that question. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you what uh, what he says here. Okay. He says the arguments for, and then this is like a lay, you know, he says this and uh, Thaddeus is like, you know, this is like for a lay audience. Right, Most yeah. of the people listening are not scientists. So um, he says, where is it here? Okay. If you want to measure something in space to finer and finer precision, quantum mechanics says you need to have higher and higher energy to look at smaller and smaller regions of space. That's why the Large Hadron Collider, which is trying to go down to 10 to the negative 17 centimeters to study quarks and gluons, is one of the most powerful things we've built in the, on the planet. When you tie that in with gravity, when you're trying to get more and more energy into a smaller and smaller space, at some point you create a black hole mm. at, 10 to the 30, at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters is where that happens. So, go ahead. There's there's so much in there. There's so much in there, uh, and I wish I had that quote in front of me. I think I do, but I just um, read it. Read it again. Start reading it again. I'll stop you. Okay. If you want to measure something in space to finer and finer precision, quantum mechanics says you need to have a higher and higher energy to look at smaller and smaller right. regions of there space. There it is. There it okay. is. Okay. So so. Quantum physics says you need a higher energy to look at a smaller region of space. Mm-hmm. Why? Yeah. First question is, why do you need higher energy to look at something small? And what do you mean by look in this example? Um, because what, what, they're, what they're doing at the Large Hadron Collider is taking individual atoms, crashing them together, and breaking them into pieces. And what he's saying is you need a lot of energy to look at something small. And it sort of seems like what he means is to crash small things together to see yeah. what they're made of. Yeah, I think to even to even be able to have any kind of a conscious effect on those things, you know, um, I think is is what's oh. implied. But I really, I well, really don't well, know. Well, you might that you might be onto something because you because you have <coughs> to you have to make an observation mm-hmm. uh, because that's how you're getting knowledge about these about about these particles or subparticles that get broken off in these collisions that you have to take an observation. So in order for you to measure something on that teeny tiny scale, uh, there's probably more tech, some more technical things involved with that that are probably well over my head. So maybe it, maybe it, maybe it makes perfect sense. Yeah, certainly over mine. Yeah. Um, so the theory itself says that if you can get down to this level, space itself will disappear. And if you crank up the energy, higher the black hole just gets bigger uh oh we have a concept like space and time that we find our theories are telling us wait a minute we have a concept like space and time that we find our theories are telling us in principle cannot be measured then it's not a fundamental concept yep yeah that's interesting so if it's not if it's not something that can be measured that it's not fundamental 
So, well, that's, that's a very scientific thing to say, that if you can't measure it, but see, and, and I wonder where we're going to go on this, because I think I think that the truth of it, and I, I, don't, I can't define to you what consciousness is, yeah. so I don't, I'm not saying I'm making any claim that I know what that is, but I do believe that the most fundamental uh, constituent part of material reality is consciousness. Yeah. You know, it's energy, and then it's consciousness below that. So he and said, you can't measure consciousness, can you? Well, we'll get there. Okay. So he says... Um. Oh, what was I gonna say? Oh, I lost it. Whatever. Damn. Um. So there's another example he uses here, but it's like a little. I, I don't really understand what he's saying. It's something to the effect of you can't trace the the position of a particular atom or small particle. Um. In space and time without having some kind of a device that has like infinite like complexity or something yeah, like that I, in in which case you create another black hole so interesting i think what he's referring to i think is in the in the quantum world you can't you can't measure a particle's momentum and it's um uh, and it's what is it it's, ma- it's mass and it's momentum at the same time so you you can't tell how it's moving uh at the same time as as uh, damn, I'm, this is breaking down on my head, but I think maybe it's the, the, maybe it's about. the mass measurement. Um, so I think maybe that's what he's referring to is that there's that there's that paradox in in the math of quantum physics that says, um, you know, that 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 you can't know that you can't know those two things at once yeah. on, on a particle at the quantum level. Um, that maybe that's tied to that. To yeah, that. I think it is. Um, and Be- he says. Because it, because if you he's basically saying that if you could crack that code if you had what you needed to crack that code you would create another black hole and you would gotcha. you wouldn't have an answer yeah uh, he says quantum mechanics says that there are no local observables anywhere in space time none and what I assume he means by local observables is that like you can't tr- you can't like observe any like particular atom I mean you can't. Like pinpoint where it is in oh, space and time. Dude, anything. That's amazing. That's amazing because because so much of quantum physics is about uh, probability. Mm-hmm. So like when they say an electron is a quantum particle, when an electron is is not in any one particular place. It's a field of possibility. It's a field of potential circling the the nucleus of the atom, and it could be anywhere. Oh yeah. That's how that's how they describe it. That's super interesting. And that's exactly what that sounds like. Yep. So he, he's talking about here, he goes on to talk about 30% of GDP is generated by quantum mechanics uh, and, you know, discoveries through that branch of science. It's a great theory, but it can't explain that measurement problem. Mm. You know, like even that it breaks down at that point. It's like, we don't really know. Um so he says the very concepts of space and time themselves do not allow measurement beyond 10 to the minus 33rd uh, centimeters. Mm. The, the theory breaks down at that point. He says when you break your theories, this is a quote, when you break your theories, that's when you break out the champagne. That's when you learn something. Yes. Um, so you got to find a theory that lets us go even, even deeper. Deeper. Uh, he says we don't cry over the loss of that theory. We, we are enriched. Um, Thaddeus says we live in a, a more interesting world with more stories in it. So back to that stories thing. Yeah, stories constrained by 
the old story, a new story constrained by the old story. Yes, yes. Um, so he says that this guy, and this is culture. Yeah. Those are our old stories, Kyle. Jordan, Jordan Peterson oh, yeah. would call them culture. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so this is going to come back to when we were talking about projection. Yes. Okay? And this is uh, another reason why I think this might be an interesting rabbit hole for you. That guy, Nima Arkani Hamed, uh, is exploring the deeper realm through mathematics. And apparently there's some kind of structure that they're proposing exists outside of time and space called the amplitudehedron mm. and, and and other ones I, I guess that's not the only one uh, that may I, I don't understand any of this okay, okay. All right, fair enough. he says it makes equations simpler than when you do them in space and time as though space and time is like a Rube Goldberg device that is making things more complicated ooh that's interesting it's very interesting because I do think there is a parallel there I, I do think that that our subjective reality, uh, even that the material world, that the cosmos, is um, is is like that. It's um, oh, I'm losing my train of thought. Damn, it'll happen. Mm. Happens to the best of them. Um, I don't know, man. No. All right. Well, uh, he he says that this is the reason that he's excited. You know oh, they were talking. You were sorry. You were saying, no, the Rube Goldberg. You were saying about, yep, yep. about about making it more complicated, and I was just saying that 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 being serves to restrict consciousness. Mm, okay. That, that it's it, you know it, something like that. Yep. Because because the um, the unfettered version, the unfiltered version, is that crazy uh, Terminator Two substance that I was telling you about. That could that potential that could be anything. Yeah, you know. Yeah, absolutely, and it's it's interesting that you bring that up because earlier we were talking about that, and I said that we were going to come to that, and he's this is a quote he says here, and in context he's just kind of like he's excited about this when he's talking about it, so he's getting kind of like excited yeah. when he's talking. He says you have these mathematical structures and these things called permutations at the foundation of it to the point where they're going why in the world are these permutations at the center of this thing is what he says (laughs) um and i don't really understand what he's talking about there but i looked up what permutation means i mean i basically knew what it meant but uh, a major or fundamental change as in character or condition based primarily on rearranging of existing elements interesting like you get something new by rearranging what you already have. That sounds like uh, the becoming that you're always talking yes, about. Yes, it does, you know? man. Uh, it's just interesting to me. It's like <sighs> it's amazing. The, uh, but yeah, here we go. On to the next thing. Uh, they kind of imply that this would be bigger than the Copernican Revolution, and I mean, I, I mean, I would agree with that. Yeah. Like us rotating around the sun or not is, I mean, you're throwing out all of that. None of that is mm. real. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I don't. I can't imagine what what it what it could be that could that could be comprehensible and believable that could overturn all of that. Yeah. Just to imagine that that could happen is mind blowing. Mind blowing. Um, so that asks how this is related to his theory of consciousness, and he says. If evolution, quantum mechanics, general and special relativity are all saying space-time is doomed, what's behind it? I'm trying to solve a problem, the hard problem of consciousness. 
uh, how our consciousness, conscious experiences like taste, smell, and feel, low-level conscious experiences, how are they related to the physical world? So you were kind of talking about that earlier. Yes. That's that golf. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's funny. Uh, I, I did not, I couldn't have told you that guy's name, the panpsychism guy, uh, but this guy's name is Hoffman. And I re- abbreviated it to Hoff at one point, and it's spelled Goff in here. I, like, I oh, mistyped it. Goff. <laughs> what a coincidence. Yeah, that is weird. Um, so he says, his colleagues say physical reality is not conscious, but it becomes, but if it becomes complicated enough in the right ways, uh, consciousness somehow arises. Uh, the question is how. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite efforts, despite the efforts of tons of geniuses he says uh you know tons of people work on this you know if you you crack it you're you're einstein you know yeah. what i mean yeah because so, because basically what what the what the i don't want to say prevailing but what the more accepted opinion is is basically this that if you have a system that is connected like a network like a neural network like you like a you know like something that's in a jellyfish but it's also our like our nervous system yeah um you know so there's like all different kinds of versions of it some more complicated than others that if you have the more connections you have the more possibilities you have um you know it's just like the the you know the combinations like the more numbers you have together the more possible combinations there are once you have enough combinations that you create this this crazy complex web in a in a in a network that somehow consciousness emerges from the complexity that this is what science this is their best explanation that if things get complicated enough like that that consciousness will just somehow pop out of it Yeah. yeah yeah um yeah uh so he says we do not have a single theory anywhere that can start with neural activity or the functional properties of some AI system and predict even one specific conscious experience. Uh, this pattern of neural activity for these principled reasons must be the smell of garlic. It could not be the smell of a rose. Mm. Um, See, that's interesting that you could model, let's say, all of the things that, that would happen, that would need to happen from like a energy and quantum level um, to, like in a Big Bang scenario, you can model out how all of that could happen and how it would result in uh, the cosmos that we see today, how everything would evolve and change and, and create what we see today. But you can't model something that would tell you what an experience subjectively is like. You, there's nothing that you can model that would come up with the smell of garlic. Yeah. That that's something that doesn't seem to exist in the material world. And yet, it's as real to us as anything we experience in the material world. Yeah. The fact that science doesn't explain that at all, and people like Neil deGrasse Tyson would say, it's the wrong question to don't ask. Don't even think about don't it. Don't even ask. Yeah. <laughs> don't even think about oh, it. God. That this is, this is the fucking point, man. Yeah. That there's, some, there's something missing in the, in the explanation. So he says, I want a theory that explains why it's necessarily the case that specific neural activities must be the taste of that this specific neural activity must be the taste of peppermint. Mm. Uh, I think the reason that they can't, that we can't, is because we framed the problem the wrong way. We've assumed that space and time are fundamental and consciousness arises out of it. But space-time is doomed. There has to be a deeper reality. He says... And the implication being that 
that deeper reality is consciousness. Consciousness. That's amazing. Because I believe that. I do too. I mean, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I do. So he says, uh, I can't, st- and what you were just talking about, I think this is a good way to say, uh, I can't start with, I can't start with physical reality and boot up consciousness. I want to go the other way. When you're talking about it, just yes. like, that's an interesting way of thinking about it, booting it up like yes. a computer, you know? Yep. Um, he says, I want to go the other way. I love that. Instead of starting with a physical system and creating consciousness somehow, I'm going to start with a mathematical model of consciousness as fundamental. So the universe is fundamental. So the universe is the fundamental lot of a social... What the? F- Terrible notes, Kyle. Yeah, I know, man. They're kind of... It's hard on the phone, you know? Oh, yeah. I gotta, gotta get my laptop situation. So basically what he's saying, even though I can't figure out what the hell I really wrote here. Uh, so the universe is a fundamental, like, social network of conscious agents. Yep. Uh, that's, what, uh, that's what is fundamental. This social network of conscious agents. Yes, and I would say that those that the conscious agents that we're talk that that we're talking about, I mean, it sounds like he's referring to whatever like material material reality is made of. That those things are all conscious agents, whatever they are, if they're gluons and quarks, or if they're or if they're consciousness. Yeah. That you know that whatever makes up the material reality are conscious agents and their interaction with one another is what causes being to emerge. That's amazing. Uh, So he says, you know, he says he wants to have a mathematical model of consciousness. Good luck with that. Yeah. Well, he says, he kind of addresses that here. He says, uh, physicists 300 years ago couldn't imagine a mathematical model of space because you can't see or touch it. Mm. Then Descartes came along and developed what what are called Cartesian coordinates. I don't know what that means. But, I mean, I have some vague idea. Uh, then Einstein came along and refined it. Uh, they did mathematize space. Uh, then the theories themselves led us to new discoveries. The theories become smarter uh, than the person who discovered them. Uh, and that's what we need for consciousness is what he says. Yep. So I love that. Yep. Uh, he doesn't want to be arrogant about it. Uh, he says he he thinks that he's probably wrong, but you got to give it the good old college try. Mm. So, did you uh, did you see the Eric Weinstein Rogan most recently where he where he was talking about his um, his grand f- physics theory? That did you see that? No, one? I didn't see that. I don't watch a I, I I don't see a lot of the Weinstein guy stuff. He, he talks a lot. He talks a lot of interesting stuff along these same lines. That he basically early in his career as a physicist had these ideas, and that he was they were kind of quashed by the people that he he was looking up to. So and, and they made it really difficult for him in school, and so he sort of gave up on the whole thing. Okay. And now he decided he was going to come out publicly and just go ahead and, and even if it's wrong, he's just going to go ahead and put it out there. Yeah. He did it on Rogan, and Rogan didn't really seem to appreciate that because he, he it didn't seem like he he knew about it ahead of time. Oh, he and just, he just dropped it on him. Got yeah. And then they were forced to have this difficult physics conversation for three hours but it was interesting and it was it was you know they talked about you know different different dimensions of reality and lots of like very technical stuff mm-hmm. but the at the heart of it was something of something like co- consciousness being uh involved in reality in, in physical reality in some in some more some very significant way nice. it's interesting I, that, i'll have to check that out um 
That was the most recent Weinstein Rogan? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so he says that he wants to predict something inside space and time and start with a theory of consciousness and say precisely how time and space arise merely as experiences within certain conscious agents. Mm-hmm. So which is like exactly what you were just saying. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, wants to... He wants to plug in a mathematical model of consciousness. Okay, so this is interesting. He says he wants to plug his mathematical model of consciousness. He says he has one. I mean, oh, shit. you know, he says it like it needs to be revised with new data, obviously. But they they basically ha- it's published too, apparently. Um, but he wants to plug that in with the stuff from that Nima Arkani Hamed guy, the amplitudehedron stuff. Then he said, then I would have a link all the way from the social network of conscious agents, like the Twitterverse, all the way down to how the Twitterverse, how certain members use a certain kind of visualization tool, namely space and time. Oh, geez. So he's, I mean, you'd think, and he's, let me just read the next quote here. He says, so if you're in the Twitterverse on Twitter, there are billions of interactions and it's overwhelming. You couldn't see it all. You need a visualization tool that ignores most of the data and summarizes what we really need. I love that. That's what space and time and matter are. They're a visualization tool that we as conscious agents use that ignores most of the Twitterverse and summarizes what we need. Oh, man. That's so great. So I, I, I think that's that resonates with me. That, that rings true on lots of levels. So I think that you need a filter to experience anything. Mm-hmm. And the reason is that what there is to experience, the thing that I call consciousness or God, that crazy Terminator 2 substance of potential behind our experiences, that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. Um, oh, I lost my train of thought again. That brutal, brutal. Jeez. Yeah, um, well, so he goes on to say that all science that we have now is the science inside of our interface, you know, of, of, it's like you put, it's like you get, get one of these new VR video games, video game worlds. And like, you get like a GTA and you're just walking around in this GTA world and you're conducting science experiments. Oh yeah. But it's like, okay. I mean, you know, Oh, that's good. I like that. You know, it's like, it's (laughs) weird as hell, dude. It's so great. Um, oh, but I, I I did pick up on that thread. It was about the filtering. It was about fil- filtering reality. Like it's yeah. it's necessary for us to see it in a limited way because if we saw the whole thing, we couldn't see anything. Yeah, you know, we, there wouldn't be perception if we looked at actual reality. That we need a filter. Yeah, and the and I I always thought that consciousness somehow was the filter, um, but but the idea that. Uh, that space and time are the filters. That's interesting as hell. It's really interesting, man. Yeah. I, I always thought that whatever whatever it is that divides us as individuals, whatever it is that makes you and I separate human beings and not and not one consciousness, that that's the truth. Whatever it is that separates us, like that's the thing that being is. And I struggle with that, trying to figure out what that is. If that could be just space and time that we completely take for granted. But it's the thing that we can't escape from. I can't peek behind the curtain of space and time. I'm completely submerged in it. Yeah. It's interesting, man. It is very interesting. Um, so Thaddeus wishes him luck because, you know, this is like going to be a hard thing to do. 
Uh, he's, and Thaddeus says that, this is the quote, he thinks a lot of these things are simply inexplicable and I don't feel the need to explain them. We have theories for all kinds of things, why people act certain ways. I've never seen any compelling evidence and I don't really care. I just love the stories. I love the pageantry of what consciousness has produced from the Bible to Newton. I enjoy it. What you're going to do is add another layer to that. Uh, and Hoffman says that he, he says, I agree pretty deeply with your assessment there. Some people see a mountain and they just have to climb it. Other people are just as happy to hear you describe it when you get back. It's all good. I mm. think that's interesting. It is interesting. It's just like you don't have to... I don't know. I I mean, <clears throat> that reminds me of uh, mirror neurons, which is something we talked about before. It's, it's, um, they can, scientists can test um, you know, with brain scans and shit that if somebody describes to you something emotional, let's say, or if you see pictures of something like a car crash or a happy birthday party with a smiling kid or something, that those things, um, that, they, that they somehow map onto your brain activity oh, yeah, yeah. so that you, f you kind of put yourself in that place. And it's like that empathy part of our part of our consciousness or part of our wiring that uh, your brain actually fires the same neurons it would fire if you were at the happy birthday party. Yeah. You know, if you were looking at the car crash. That's interesting. Yeah, so, it is, right? Um, so he says, I'm saying consciousness is fundamental and has dynamics. So that raises the obvious question, what is it up to and why? Mm. If there are dynamics, it has to do something. What is it doing and why? Consciousness is an actor and a creator. So what is it up to and why? The answer is I don't know. It's hard to find an idea that is deep enough to take seriously. Uh, assume, assume the universe is a network of conscious agents. What are they up to? What idea could be deep enough that even if it's wrong is not laughable? I got two of them. Yeah. I have two answers to that question for this guy. Right off, the, right off the top of my head. First one we already talked about, circumambulation. Okay. Um, the second one is um, the second one is the way Jordan Peterson describes it, which is um, which is this pro this pro he describes it as a process, which is um, chaos, order, and the force that mediates between them. And I'll put this in a different way. Um, do you? Oh, and you know, I don't want to use this analogy because I want to use it in my in my maps Save of meaning. But I'll, I'll put it this way. Um, so he, Jordan Peterson would say that that there's that there is the the known, which which is also what we would call order, mm -hmm. the unknown, which we would call chaos, and the uh, and the force that mediates between them, which uh, which is is the it's the knower basically. You have the known, the unknown, and the knower. Okay. So imagine this scenario. Imagine you're the knower. And you're and you're uh, in the middle of the forest, and you have a campfire, and all you can see is the light from this campfire, this circle around you. So the known to you is this little little uh, area of of illuminated camp, you know, camp, right? And all the dark darkness in the forest around you is unknown territory. Uh, and then you take a flashlight and you start walking around your perimeter and you get an idea of what's around and you continue to expand and expand the area of the known. So what you're doing is you're exploring the, the unknown and you're making known out of it. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. So um, 
uh, now I'm losing my 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 thread about why we were going down this road in, in any way. Oh, the answer to the question that that he posed about what is consciousness doing if it's doing something? Yeah, this is what it's doing. You know, we're, we are examples of consciousness. So if he's asking the question, if consciousness seems to be doing something, what is it doing and why? Well, look at look at any example of a conscious creature. Look at you and I. What are we doing? We are exploring the unknown, and we're bringing we're bringing the known in you know uh, out of it. We're we're, yeah. we're we're that's the hero's journey. We're going into the darkness. We're fighting the dragon, and we're bringing back the rewards. Yeah. What what the knower is doing, what consciousness is doing, is bringing more things into consciousness. Yeah. Where is it bringing those things from? From itself. Mm-hmm. That's what consciousness is doing it's through our experience with. Through, through our experience, yeah. it's creating more consciousness. It's the doing the same thing you and I are doing. We we make babies and have more kids. The same thing our our DNA is doing. It's dividing and splitting off into two two new strands. That's what consciousness is doing. Yeah. Um, and that's the story. That's that's the hero's journey. But it's the narrative of our lives. Um, you know, we have no choice but to expand the the territory of what's known to us by exploring the world. That's what consciousness does. Yep. That's my answer. So he, he, what he says is the only di- idea he's seen that comes close uh, enough for him is uh, an idea proposed by Kurt Gödel. I don't know. Uh, you ever heard of that book, Gödel Escher Bach? Uh, it vaguely rings a bell. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I I know it's basically the same for me too. I like I've heard of it, but I really have no idea what it's about. Um, but Kurt Gödel had something called the incompleteness theorem, and he says mathematical structure is endlessly rich, and no matter how much structure you study, there will always be more structure that is yet to be explored, and it will never end. It's impossible for it to end. If consciousness is fundamental, then math has always and only been about consciousness. When we study conscious experience, we find conscious experiences are mathematically structured. Uh, he says that you have to take his word for that, you know, basically. Um, but, go ahead. Go ahead. Start, start back at the beginning of that again, and I'll tell you when to stop. Okay. Uh, the un- uh, let's see here where uh, the incompleteness theorem. Yeah. Mathematical structure is endlessly rich, and no matter how much structure you study, there will always be more structure that is yet to be explored. Exactly, and it will let's never stop. end. It's exactly. Let's stop right there. Yep. So, so this is exactly what I just said about there being infinite unknown that the chaos that surrounds us that we can go out into and, and turn into the into the known, mm-hmm. that that's what he's saying, that yeah. the structure just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. It never ends. Yep. So that's true, and it reminds me again of the fractal picture, that you could just go deeper and deeper into it, and it never ends. So yeah. again, we see the fractal image coming up in this talk about consciousness. So that's, that's significant. Yep. Um, and then there's this idea that even in our... Even in our modern era, where we, where you might say that the that the t- domain of the known, that the territory of the stuff that we know, is huge. It's no longer the camp anymore. It's no longer the it's no longer the yeah. village or the country or the world. It's the now galaxy. it's the galaxy. It's the co- greater cosmos. It's all yeah. that stuff that we know. But listen, man, even that stuff, beyond that stuff, beyond 
the distance that light travels that we can see. It's called the observable universe. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, it's still unknown. It's still an infinite breadth of territory for us to, 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 to explore. So, and, and, and even when we close our eyes and our, and our imagination and we ask ourselves questions and we dream up ideas, even in that realm, it's infinite. There is no end to it. Absolutely. So I just want to, I just want to tie all that shit together. Sorry. Unlike this podcast, which there will be an end to eventually. We're coming to it, I promise. Uh, So this is his quote about that. He says, mathematics is always and only about the structure of conscious experiences. Mathematics is endless. That means that consciousness has endless explorations of the forms of consciousness. Mm. It's like a kid in a candy store. No matter how much you sample, there is always more. So just sample, experience. That's deeply what it's all about based on this girdles uh, I know. love that dude I think yeah. that's a great place to end that's anyway great. he said he said that that experience is this infinite array of 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 ways of experiencing consciousness so go out there and experience it yes, taste indeed. taste you some peace well there you have it that's one avenue explored but infinitely more still to go i hope you enjoyed thinking along with us i know i know It's not easy work, thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.